Welcome to In Conversation, featuring Dean Michael Horswell and faculty from Florida Atlantic University's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters, talking about research and creative activities that span the arts, humanities, and social sciences. Assistant Professor Wendy Hinshaw, Ph.D., from the Department of English, teaches courses in rhetoric, literacy, women's literature, and prison writing, with articles on representations of trauma with regard to art and writing by prisoners. Professor Hinshaw is working to bring public awareness to prisoners' writing and to help prisoners' voices be heard. Filling in for Dean Horswell, Associate Dean Barclay Barrios engages in conversation with Professor Wendy Hinshaw. Good afternoon and welcome to In Conversation, a production of the Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters at Florida Atlantic University. I am Associate Dean Barclay Barrios, standing in for Dean Horswell, who is working on his own research, attending a lecture in his field. And I am absolutely delighted to be here today and extra delighted to be here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Wendy Hinshaw, Associate Professor of English and Director of Writing Programs. Dr. Hinshaw, welcome to In Conversation. Thank you, Barclay. I'm so happy to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Now, I know Dean Horswell usually starts off with one particular question, but I'm going to mix things up a little bit. You and I are both um, English professors, and I find that whenever I tell someone I'm an English professor, the first thing they say invariably is, uh-oh, I better watch my grammar. So I thought it might be useful if you could explain to our audience a little bit about your particular field in English and literary studies and what exactly you do. Well, yeah, uh, that's great. Yes, I get that response a lot, Barkley. Uh, and like you, uh, my background is in rhetoric and composition. And so one of the ways I introduce my pe- myself to people is by saying that I'm an English professor who doesn't teach literature. And another way I like to talk about it is is I like to demystify what they're thinking of when they're thinking of writing. So when I say that I teach writing is when I get that response uh, about I better watch my grammar. And I like to sort of challenge them to think about writing a bit more broadly than that. And, I, and by reminding them, for instance, that we write more on this earth, people on this earth are writing more than we were written before, and that writing is uh, more and more our primary form of communication. Communication. It's displacing oral communication uh, because we're communicating so often through texts, through text messages, and through other kinds of writing platforms. And so I challenge them to think broadly about writing and composing. And that kind of leads me into most of my, my research and work within writing studies has focused on, on writing outside of the university. So a lot of my research and publications have focused on community writing programs and particularly writing programs in prisons. And so they have, among other things, really taught me about the power of writing and what happens when we take writing and expectations about writing outside of the confines to the classroom of the classroom and really think about what writing can do what writing can do for a writer and for an audience what writing can do for fostering relationships between people what writing can do uh, in helping us tell our stories and learn about the stories and experiences of other people. 
And now I will turn to Dean Horswell's script by asking you, how did you stumble into this field? Did you grow up wanting to be an English professor or what brought you to this particular profession? Well, you know, I think like a lot of folks, I started my English career as a student who loved literature and loved studying literature. And in fact, I distinctly remember beginning my graduate degree, my master's degree, uh, with a focus in literature and going around a table and other graduate students saying that they were focusing on rhetoric and composition. And I thought, what's that? That sounds awful. (laughs) And then I came to discover that rhetoric was something that I quite liked because it really meant analyzing and looking at certainly not just written texts, but texts of various kinds. And that if I, in fact, if I studied rhetoric and I studied rhetorical principles, I would never be bored because I could apply them to everything because everything is rhetorical. And so I think that was when I moved away from literature because I thought, well, if I study Shakespeare, then I'll always be studying Shakespeare. But if I study rhetoric, then I can look at anything. And so at that point I thought, well, I I could understand the study of rhetoric, but who would do composition? And of course, now as a director of uh, the writing program, uh, my my own ideas about writing have certainly expanded. Uh, And I began to understand, just like I asked other people to understand, writing and composing in much broader terms. Uh, And so, uh, you know, and I think one of the questions that have always driven me are about the circumstances under which we write and learn about writing and how those circumstances uh, affect us, right, as writers or as learners. So how the conditions, the institutional conditions, the material conditions, the social conditions, uh, don't just shape us as writers, but shape us as learners of writing and as writing practitioners and certainly as writing teachers. And so those are the kinds of questions that carry me inside the college classroom and also outside of it as I think about how the circumstances in which we write and compose change and change us. And that's a really beautiful segue to our particular topic this afternoon. You recently gave a community talk about book bans in prisons. And can you give us sort of a quick summary or overview of the heart of the talk you gave? Yes. So, you know, historically, I have, uh, my work has been focused on composing and on writing. uh, But this was really an opportunity to think about, about reading. And of course, that works for me, because I'm thinking uh, broadly about composing, but also about literacy practices. And literacy practices include writing, reading, listening, right? And so uh, this was a, a public talk during the time of Banned Book Week, uh, happens every fall. And it's an opportunity for us as a society and within our communities to sort of think about the value of books, think about the value of literacy and of knowledge, uh, and particularly to call our attention to attempts to ban or restrict access to books across the U.S. Uh, So that includes censorship efforts in libraries and schools, et cetera. And I think in the in recent years we've become uh, maybe more sensitive to the uh, 
the risks in banning books and the different motivations that have led particular groups to seek to ban or remove books with particular kinds of content from school shelves or library shelves. Uh, and so I, that it's, so it's always an opportunity to sort of stay vigilant and stay informed about censorship efforts in our communities. But it was also an opportunity for me to shift our focus to really those for whom books have been most banned and for whom uh, protection for the freedom to read is arguably most crucial because the freedom to read is a privilege that's not only threatened by censorship, uh, but also by state and federal restrictions that ban access to many kinds of reading materials in prison. And so at the end of the day, what I what I did was sort of trace the, the many, many restrictions on reading and writing materials and on literacy practices in prisons. And I think we can see a very clear relationship between efforts to, or the acceptance of bans, I would say, the acceptance of these kinds of bans and restrictions in prisons. And once we accept that there are certain populations for whom it's appropriate to ban access or remove access to literacy materials, once we decide that there are those for whom literacy access is not a right, then it becomes a sort of slippery slope where we're more comfortable removing or uh, creating barriers to literacy materials outside of prisons. And I also love that we're having this conversation because I think often people think only the performing arts are the place where the university intersects the public or the community. But what you're really talking about is an alignment between your work as an academic and your research and engagement with community and advocacy. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which those things come together, how your work as an academic and your work as an advocate, how they align or misalign? Well, I have for, for many years now worked closely with literacy organization Exchange for Change. And this is a Miami-based nonprofit that provides uh, reading, writing, and communication opportunities inside South Florida prisons and then also fosters exchanges and relationships between these writing classrooms on the inside of prisons and various classrooms and groups outside of it. So the organization has had uh, writing partnerships between incarcerated students in South Florida who've exchanged writing with students here at FAU, uh, at the University of Miami, at FIU, also as far as Emory University and now even the University of Iowa. And so what we learn through these kinds of writing exchanges has, has informed my own research and teaching and, and is also a constant reminder to me, again, about the different kinds of the very different circumstances in which writers are writing and also the power of uh, connection across the page and across the written word. So there's something really powerful to me about college students communicating with incarcerated students and learning about themselves through writing and through a shared identity as writers. And they come away with 
increased knowledge really about themselves and about their community, certainly increased knowledge about issues of mass incarceration and how they affect all of us in our society, no matter which side of the razor wire we're sitting on. But they also come away with an increased knowledge about writing about how we think about ourselves as writers, what it means to think about ourselves as writers, what kinds of circumstances uh, foster composing and writing, and what kinds of circumstances create barriers. One of the issues that I talked about in my presentation, although it was about banned books, we also talked about literacy pro- uh, practices more broadly, including the mail ban, the ban on U.S. mail in Florida prisons. So at this time, uh, people incarcerated in Florida cannot receive physical mail. So if family members, loved ones send mail items for instance, a Christmas card or a Mother's Day card or a picture that a child has made for their loved one who's incarcerated, uh, that person can't receive that physical item in the mail. Instead, they receive a scan of it on their tablet. And so that's an opportunity to really think about uh, certainly digital uh, practices of reading and composing and you know, in what circumstances we really value the transmission of writing and reading across digital platforms. And then in, and then also the kinds of circumstances where we feel like we've really lost something important when I can't hold the drawing or the card that my loved one has tried to send to me. And in your talk, you're not simply looking at the power of writing, but also quite specifically the power of reading. Could you highlight for our audience a few of the examples of the sorts of books that are banned in prison systems in Florida and across the United States? One of the things I talk about is just how difficult it is to know what books are banned. So most of the time, most states do not make that information public and in fact, make it very difficult to know what's been banned. Here in Florida, the Department of Corrections banned book list has over 20,000 titles on it. So we do have that list available to us as the public, but we don't have a lot of information about the review committee that makes those decisions. So that's a committee contained within the Department of Corrections, and we don't know who they are, nor do we have their contact uh, information. So it makes it very difficult to appeal. The majority of bans are, we can think about them as either content bans. So they're books that are, are banned by title. So for instance, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow has previously been banned. Uh, it's no longer banned, so it is allowed, it's approved in Florida prisons, but the accompanying discussion guide is not. So sometimes those bans are, are very arbitrary, but they're, they typically fall under codes. The content bans uh, are generally justified by a suggestion that the content in question presents some kind of reason for concern. So typically related to uh, sexual content or depictions of violence or language that's perceived to encourage it or depictions of criminal activity or language perceived to encourage it, as well as racial animus or language perceived to uh, to encourage it. And so while those categories themselves may encompass areas of legitimate concern, they can be and often are construed so broadly that they end up serving as really convenient justifications for 
what are ultimately really arbitrary bans. Uh, so as I said, so the new Jim Crow is allowed, but the discussion guide that accompanies it is not. And there are serious implications when you look at the number of books that are banned uh, improperly that are directly relevant to the experiences of, and needs of incarcerated people. So, for instance, there's disciplinary self-help litigation manual that's meant to educate people in prison about their rights. There's a book called The Federal Prison Handbook. And so maybe that was looked at as something that was providing I don't know, some kind of safety concern, but it's actually written by a former federal prisoner and it's intended as an insider's view that's meant to guide people in prison through the prison system. There are particularly a number of books that serve uh, LGBTQ audiences. So one coming out of concrete closets is one that's frequently banned. And it's a factual report on the experiences of LGBTQ pr uh, people in prison. And it's published by Prisoners' Rights Organization. And so directly relevant to a population of folks who is not getting the resources that they need. And you've also discussed how these bans, even when motivated by safety, impact certain communities disproportionately. And LGBTQ is one, but there also seems to be, from your talk, a racial component. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Scholars have argued, uh, like Michelle Alexander, that mass incarceration is a continuation of racist American policies designed to oppress black and brown people. But many books that are making these kinds of arguments that are offering racial critique of the criminal justice system or particularly the prison system are banned. And so we see not just critiques of the prison system, but critiques of structural racism and civil rights oriented books have a high uh, number of them are, are banned. So let me ask a pretty impactful question, because I can imagine there are some people in the audience who are wondering, why should we care? These people are criminals. These people have committed crimes. Why should we spoil them with all these luxuries? Can you help us understand what's at stake for those of us who are not incarcerated? You know, I think that there's two things. I think the first, I guess what, what feels like more of a structural or intellectual argument is that I see a strong correlation between a decision to ban or create barriers or withhold access. Once we decide that we're willing to withhold access or create barriers around access to knowledge for certain groups of people, uh, then we become more comfortable doing that again and again, right? So I do think that the freedom of folks who are not incarcerated is ultimately linked directly to the freedoms of those who are incarcerated. If we are citizens and if we have a First Amendment right, or if we have rights under our Constitution, then the protection of those rights need to continue. And, and when we're incarcerated, we surrender some of our rights, but not all of them. But the increased infringement on the rights of people who are incarcerated ultimately affects all of us. All right, because we're removing a line that says what's acceptable 
and what isn't or removing that line. So I think part of it is that, and we don't always realize how tied our rights are, but certainly I think the rights that free people enjoy are only as strong as the preservation of those rights for those who are not free, right? So I think that's part of it. Uh, Another part of it is just really a very, I think, human aspect of thinking about the power of books and the power of being moved by books. And in our current uh, circumstances of mass incarceration, almost all of us is connected to someone who's been affected by the criminal justice system if we haven't been directly affected ourselves. But beyond that, almost all of us can think of a book or a literacy moment that was transformative for us. And so when I think about the power, the transformative power of literacy, of books, of having the right book at the right moment, it really helps me understand how sharing books and accessing books is fundamentally about fostering connections. Actually, one of the moments I loved in your talk, and I would love to hear how it went, is when you ask people to share about their experiences sharing a book. Because I know I've had many friends who've said, oh, you've got to read this book, let me give you a copy, or I've received books as gifts. How did that actually go when you gave the talk? What sorts of experience did people talk about when it came to sharing books? You know, everyone that I've talked to about this has been able to identify a time when they've shared a book with someone, where they've received a book as a gift uh, or a recommendation from a book of someone from someone who they respected or knew. So even if they if somebody didn't put a book in their hands, they told them, "You have to read this," right? Or I'm one who will, when I come to someone's house and I see a book that's sitting out and I want to take a peek at it, or I'll stay at an Airbnb and start a book, and then I'll go and buy it so that I can finish the book that I started. And so that was, you know, one of the, it was also a sort of surprising aspect of book banning for folks to learn that books uh, in prison aren't just banned for their content, but they're also banned in terms of the way in which they can be received. So in other words, there are rules that deny books on the basis of how they're shipped or delivered. And so right now, while we can't send letters or mail to people in prison, we can send them books, but only through specific approved vendors. And so that really limits the ways in which people People can share books and receive books. I can't just mail a book from home to a family member or a loved one in prison. It has to be ordered through a third-party site, and it has to be received through the U.S. mail. So loved ones who are trying to, for instance, send a book to someone through Amazon have to watch that Amazon shipment to make sure it's delivered through the U.S. Postal Service. Because it's del- if it's delivered through FedEx, which Amazon also uses, it'll be denied. And there have been many cases where states have shut down any uh, delivery of physical books at all, which again, really narrows and limits the kind of reading material that incarcerated people can access, limiting it to their tablets and often charging them for ebooks that we would get for free on the outside. 
Yeah, I think one of your examples of that was Moby Dick, which is certainly available in the public domain. If I can sort of synthesize what I heard you saying for our listeners, that if, if you've ever been touched by a book or moved by a book or changed by a book, imagine denying that transformative power to the people we most want to change we most want to mm-hmm. rehabilitate. And how is that possible if we don't give them the incredible power of reading? Is that a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. So since your work is often so connected to advocacy, if there are listeners who are really riled up about this book banning situation, what are some possible avenues for people to advocate for change? There are a lot of things that we can do to support literacy access in prison. I think it's important, first of all, that we stay aware of it and and, uh, stay informed about the erosion of rights and of access uh, that continues to affect uh, reading and writing and literacy in prisons. And then we, aside from that, and aside from, from staying in close communication with our own legislatures and representatives, uh, we can also support book access organizations. One of my favorites to support is Freedom Reads, which is a prison library project started by Reginald Dwayne Betts. He was himself incarcerated and found the right book at the right moment, which really started his journey as a prolific uh, writer of our, one of the most prolific writers of our time. The Banned Books Behind Bars project is an ongoing effort to study and, and document the number of books that are banned across the U.S. And of course, literacy organizations like Exchange for Change that are doing really crucial work to support reading and writing in prisons here in Florida. And I want to underscore what you said earlier, that if we can limit the rights of one group, then inevitably they can come after us, that we are connected to this issue, because if rights are not secured for everyone, they're not secured for anyone. That's right. And these are our neighbors. These are our community members. It's uh, certainly the design of prisons is to think of people who are incarcerated as as gone, as cut off from society. But over 90 percent of them return to our communities. And more importantly, they're a part of communities during their incarceration. And so the transformative power of books and literacy more broadly doesn't just affect an individual, but it affects an individual within a community, right? When we share books, when we share our writing with each other, uh, we transform the communities where we are. Wow, that is really powerful and impactful. Thank you so much, Dr. Wendy Hinshaw, for joining us today. I hope our listeners will consider the impact of books, reading, and writing, a broad spectrum of literacy practices in their lives and in their communities, both the ones outside and within prisons. And Dr. Hinshaw, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. This has been In Conversation with Dr. Wendy Hinshaw. I'm Associate Dean Barclay Barrios, filling in for Dean Horswell, and I hope you all have a really wonderful day. You've been listening to In Conversation with Associate Dean Barclay Barrios and Professor Wendy Hinshaw of FAU's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters from their meeting in December of 2022. 
In Conversation is a production of FAU School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. We thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us for another edition of In Conversation. Follow us on Instagram at ALInConversation or email us at icpodcast at fau.edu. We'd love to hear from you. And listen for In Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.